Welcome to today's podcast, Using Evidence-Based Research to Address the Opioid Crisis. In addition to the impact on individuals and their families, the medical and psychological issues associated with addiction create a special set of challenges for corporations with potential safety, economic, legal, and reputational implications. Organizations, however, have been slow to put systems and programs in place to deal with such problems before they actually manifest themselves and become a major distraction. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence sits down with Dr. Mark Gold to discuss these challenges. Dr. Gold is a world-renowned expert on addiction-related diseases and has worked for over 40 years to develop models for understanding the effects of tobacco, cocaine, opioids, and food on the brain and behavior. After being a professor at Yale, Florida, and now Washington University in St. Louis, Dr. Gold is serving as chairman of Rivermen Health's scientific advisory boards, providing scientifically driven specialty behavior health services to those suffering from alcohol and drug dependency, dual disorders, eating disorders, obesity, and chronic pain. I'll now turn it over to David Lawrence. Greg, thank you. And Mark, this is truly a very, very special honor and uh, privilege. Um, we actually, um, this is for the audience, we actually first met uh, about 35 years ago when I was <laughs> a young, young prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office and uh, crack cocaine was uh, making its appearance on the streets of New York. And Mark was kind enough to come to the office and actually um, speak to us about what it was and uh, the effects and how to begin to think about uh, what was then the early stages of what ultimately, you know, became the crack cocaine uh, epidemic. But uh, by way of introduction for Mark, uh, there are very few honest brokers in any space uh, in the world. Uh, Mark is one of them. And he has selflessly um, led the effort to better understand um, the issues of addiction and drugs, uh, the drug distribution networks, and to do it with um, data, to do it with uh, what I refer to as a clinical approach, and always with the mindset of trying to make things better and trying to allow people to understand the very, very complex issues without emotion and to be at the forefront of um, leading solutions, uh, not all of which have yet to meet the market. So uh, great honor, Mark, to sit down with you and uh, to discuss what's currently going on. Uh, let me begin, uh, if I can, by asking you for sort of a state of the union. Uh, around the current um, addiction crisis, where we are, and maybe to put it into some historical context. Well, uh, thanks for the introduction. And yes, I remember that. Um, when you write uh, a thousand or so peer-reviewed scientific papers and chapters and so forth, some of them are actually good and memorable. And I do remember the first report of crack cocaine, what it was. It was uh, I didn't invent crack cocaine, but what happens with drugs of abuse are, sadly, that they're often viewed as safe. And so remember in the cocaine epidemic, and it's a good example, cocaine was viewed as safe. It was the champagne of drugs. It was, in fact, not addicting. The psychiatry manual, the DSM, declared um, cocaine to be non-addicting in its first iteration, the DSM-1, 
continue that in the DSM-2, continue that in the DSM-3, and had to be revised late in the 80s after the cocaine epidemic. So if you start with drugs of abuse being safe, then they're field tested on the American people. And then we find out that cocaine causes heart attacks and cocaine causes seizures and cocaine causes strokes and cocaine causes addiction, a chronic relapsing lifelong disease with no specific cure. Um, for opiate uh, drugs, we had the widespread belief that they were safe and could be used for people with pain syndromes without much concern that uh, they would become addicted. And so believing that without any data um, caused many people who would ordinarily have not been exposed to opioids to be exposed to them use begets use. And what we know about addicting drugs is they stimulate their own taking, meaning that if you take the drug, it, it um, has an effect on the brain, which makes it more likely that you use it again and again and again. And for people who have pain syndromes, um, the drug uh, use continued and large numbers um, were exposed. Many um, became uh, physically dependent and others became what we would call have the disease of addiction, which we could discuss. This, this went on for really a long time. And, and in fact, we had a Department of Justice teleconference from DEA Museum where Ted Cicero from Washington University and Bill Jacobs from the Bluff Plantation, who's a triple-boarded pain expert, described how it was getting harder and harder for people to fill their Oxycontin and other pain medication prescriptions. They needed office visits. The doctors were becoming uh, increasingly concerned about repeat visits. Oxycontin was selling for a dollar a milligram or more. And heroin prices were just so low that it became quicker and easier to use heroin. And with that came the, uh, the opioid uh, overdose epidemic. And that probably is what drew so much attention. It wasn't so much the, uh, the number of people who were dependent and needed treatment for addiction. It was really just the amazing number, uh, incredible for the United States of lethal overdoses, well over 50,000 lethal overdoses in 2015. Um, our, some of our leaders have, have said that we had a Vietnam War every year, and those overdose deaths have seemed to just increase. Um, so you, you have, on top of a alcohol uh, dependence and abuse problem in the United States, on top of a cannabis use and dependence problem in the United States, on top of a cocaine abuse and dependence problem in the United States. We had superimposed on, on that a new problem, opioid overdose, opioid death, and opioid addiction. Mark, um, in your years of practice, you've seen the landscape and you've seen what I'll refer to as sort of the cycles of deja vu all over again. What's different about the current crisis? So I mean, I knew the, the, in the United States, we we have a tendency of taking a drug that's been used in a certain way and then making it 
more lethal. So if you think about the cocaine epidemic, we had coca leaf chewing, and that was never really a, a problem, a drug problem in the Andes that work at high altitudes with no money. We had cocaine and Coca-Cola. That was clearly not a problem. People didn't boil their Coca-Cola to sniff the residue. And until we had cocaine hydrochloride as a patent medicine sold for dental problems and so forth. But even then, um, it was not really available. And I can remember myself when I went into the field, cocaine wasn't even available in major cities every day of the week. So you have, um, but we then, we then made it widely available. The price drop, cocaine sniffing, and addiction related to that was starting to be reported and cocaine consequences. And then we invented um, cocaine uh, crack, as you said, and then um, you had crack freebase IV use, and we had all the cocaine problems that were so um, clear to everybody today. So for opioids, we had uh, a, to a, a point in time when physicians wouldn't prescribe opioids for non-malignant pain. That changed with pain being seen as uh, essential in quality care metrics to evaluate hospital care and doctor care. And the um, mantra was that pain should, should not go untreated, unnoticed, and it was necessary to treat, and, the, and it was easy to treat because you could just give a pill. Then you had pills coming out that purported to be safe and non-addicting, just deja vu again, like you said, for what we heard about cocaine, but it turned out that you could chop them up and sniff them. You could uh, then um, buy other opioids on the market and switch over um, to heroin. And, and so we've had just a tremendous and, and quick change from, from the occasional use to um, manufacture of pills and widespread availability and now switch into heroin and most recently heroin laced with adulterants and our group has been looking at what's in the street heroin and there are some kidney toxic and liver toxic elements now and there also are fentanyl um, more potent uh, opioids in the um, doses that people are are taking and both of the both of which are contributing to deaths and just in terms of the demographics, um, because what it appears to have happened here, and I just on a personal note, I feel that something very significant was lost in the recent presidential elections in terms of what was not debated. But the scourge of addiction uh, now cuts across all geographic regions, income classes, employment educational levels, uh, religions, races, et cetera. And uh, you know, I'd be curious to just sort of get your general observation of sort of what has accelerated here uh, in the current crisis. And um, as we get to maybe some of the solutions, uh, but certainly to understand the different root causes, uh, because this this one does feel different and it is different because of as you said, we we find we have found new ways to exploit existing drugs, right. um, and and uh, we're now on the street. And it is not simply an internal issue; it's obviously it's an external 
threat that you've been very close to in your work with the DA and, and some of the sources of, of these threats are coming from uh, outside um, the U.S., uh, both in terms of what is organically grown and what is synthetically manufactured. So maybe you could just unpack that a little bit because I think that will lead us in nicely into a discussion about how people need to be thinking about this crisis and some of the pragmatic things that we might be able to do. Sure. I mean, you know, you for the older people who are listening and maybe not as old as I am, but um, nevertheless, you might remember there used to be um, public service announcements and educational announcements related to drugs and drug effects. Rarely, if ever, do you see them again. There used to be educational programs within schools, uh, prevention programs. Rarely would you see them. There used to be um, Mrs. Ford talking about uh, her problems with alcohol. And we had we had some efforts on prevention. We also had... Uh, efforts in interdicting drugs coming across borders and coming into the United States. And the way that the DEA would look at that would be in terms of tonnage or amount of pills or what they actually caught. And also kept they would keep track of the price, knowing that if they caught enough, the price would go up. And they'd try to uh, keep an eye on what the price per dose was. At the same time, we had made tremendous problem. We had a tremendous problem that we made great success. And I wrote a textbook on tobacco. And, you know, we, we succeeded in really cutting the number of cigarette smokers, but we failed to use the lessons that were generated and, and tested and proven effective um, with tobacco for other drugs, which we've tended to minimize. So, Really, I'll go back to, the, to where I started with, we have looked mostly at deaths. And so people say alcohol has the most deaths per year in the United States. And, you know, I'd say it's somewhere around 90,000. Um, cigarettes still would exceed that. And then if you just look at, at deaths, opioids would come in and then cocaine and other drugs that might not cause the number of deaths might be ignored. But generally, um, drug use, drug problems, med plus medication use problems um, affect more Americans than ever before. I had uh, at one time looked at the number in the early 70s, and it was 5% had even ever used an illegal drug at any time, and we broke 50% a long time ago. So we, uh, we, it's David Musto, the Yale um, historian on the drug epidemic, wrote a classic book called The American Disease, and in many ways, it's uh, truer today that we take drugs from every other culture, we use them believing that the drugs are safe until proven dangerous, we prove their danger inadvertently on ourselves and then change the route of the administration and the dose forms to make them more dangerous and addicting. Uh, because uh, just like my work in food, the uh, drugs of abuse um, and, and cannabis is really a, a good example of this. 
uh, Woodstock 1 cannabis at 0.5% THC is not the same as Woodstock 2 cannabis at 9% THC. So you, you get to the point where drugs stimulate their own taking on the basis of the amount and of drug that gets into the body and brain and the time it takes to get to the body to get from the body to the brain the quicker being the most dependence producing and all of that we don't even take into consideration the age of user it's more it's easier to get addicted it's easier to have problems the younger the user whether it's binge alcohol drinking or uh, substance use and there are other factors psychiatric factors trauma neglect and um, all, all kinds of psychiatric comorbidities make the user uh, more likely to be addicting. Not all people would have the same addiction liability, but if you work hard enough, any um, drugs of abuse work and you, you'll become uh, dependent. So if I can um, just sort of deconstruct what you uh, said, Mark. There really is uh, a great deal of pattern recognition, and I'll actually go back further than the first time I met you. It's you know you go back to the tales of Ulysses and um, the land of the lotus eaters, and where people had to be strapped to the mast of the ships in order to bring them home safely. Uh, it just strikes me uh, again, as you said, there's a infinite capacity for taking something and extending its properties um, more and more. There is a self-inflicted quality to these types of wounds. There is the fact that they're often associated with other forms of um, disease, whether it's um, depression, anxiety, et cetera. And there's also the inherent notion of risk-taking, which is certainly prevalent amongst uh, young people. Uh, maybe I'll you know, towards the end, I'll talk about Mark's presentation about the development of the male brain and the female brain. But there is there there are certain almost uh, I'll call them constants that we know about human nature uh, and such. And what also appears present from the new rash of of drugs and whether it's you know heroin or fentanyl or you know the various opiates that are on the market is that the margin of error is much less. As you said, there's there's the marijuana that was smoked at Woodstock uh, a number of years ago, and there's the current uh, marijuana that is uh, disseminated. And it just strikes me from an observer standpoint, there is a narrower margin of error than ever before. So uh, if we assume that um, there's a certain amount of risk-taking, we assume there's certainly always going to be some supply, uh, the effects of experimentation, taking drugs out to their dangerous limits. Um, if we were going to think about this as a crisis, have we learned any lessons? Are we doing things any differently uh, than, they were, than we were 40 years ago? So, you know, if you look at the success with tobacco, and that would be our greatest um, addiction and prevention success, you would say, um, well, I remember, and you might remember, when tobacco cigarettes were 17 cents a pack. Well, um, at 8 or $10 a pack, you people smoke less, even dependent people. 
So um, the cost is uh, uh, a way that we have of uh, affecting use. And access is the same. When I was growing up, we had vending machines. You could go to the diner and buy cigarettes at any age. Um, so uh, we eliminated that, reduced access. Um, so access is just, and, and you reduce access um, through the Clean Air Act by saying that you can't smoke in a public place and restricting where you could use. You can't smoke on planes. I mean, flight attendants got all kinds of secondhand smoke cancers because they had smoking on the plane. And clearly that um, caused them to suffer greatly and unnecessarily. So we had um, access changes. We, we changed the um, understanding of what doctors could do. They could, instead of walking by smokers, smoking in hospitals. Um, physicians themselves were smoking. I joked once that I learned how to listen to the heart during medical school, and the doctor who was teaching me at the bedside was smoking. And um, I kept saying I couldn't hear that song, that, that sound, couldn't hear that heart sound. Could you please not cough? I mean, it was, so you, we had smoking in the med school class. Hmm. We had, you know, so, so you had all of these things have, have added up to make smoking not cool. Brooke Shields helped in her anti-tobacco ads. And we, the price, the access, the laws, the knowledge, and the, the um, treating everyone every visit. We treat, we, we ask people if they want to quit. We help them. Stop every visit. So in, in a way, at the same time that we made opioids the fifth vital sign, smoking status and exposure to secondhand smoke for children became part of the medical record, and we empowered physicians to intervene with new treatments and old treatments from the patch to the gum to medication treatments that help with smoking cessation. And we treat them multiple times if they relapse, and they... Um, Net, 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 we found out that, that um, the most important intervention was um, access, the public smoking laws, the stigma. When it comes to drugs, it's, um, stigma is, not, uh, is a good prevention tactic. It's not a good tactic for getting people engaged in treatment, but for first use and experimental use, um, it certainly um, is... A, uh, the price per pack, it's public use, it's um, rather than being cool, what Brooke Shields would say in her ad was that she wouldn't, uh, once a person uh, smelled of smoke, she would walk away. So, um, notwithstanding. It's different now for the other drugs. Yeah, That's kind of, I was yeah. going to say. Basically, right. like, yeah, people, you, you pass, um, you uh, uh, there's, um, there, there's widespread use of drugs of abuse, including uh, uh, binge and high-dose alcohol use throughout our society at underage levels and at uh, adult and even baby boomer geriatric levels. 
Right. And as enterprises, you know, begin to, because you hit on some important themes here, but as corporations, organizations, the government begins to think about these issues, um, what you're also suggesting is we have yet to apply the lessons that have worked in in other fields such as smoking. And by the way, I know you, you didn't give any credit to plaintiffs' lawyers for all the litigation they filed, but we'll put well, that you know, I'm, that's, yeah, I should, and, and in fact, I I was an uh, expert in chip alone. There you go. So, but uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we we may be seeing some of that now. Uh, obviously, the states' attorney generals are um, coming together and using some uh, private counsel uh, to think about suing the drug manufacturers of opiates. Um, but we we seem to have yet to apply. You know, we'll call it the acquired wisdom, both in terms of prevention, um, how to speak to people and how to sort of get them into treatment. And then, of course, you know, the options of what what can be provided. And what I want to do is is really probe you is, you know, uh, people have to manage these risks, whether you're in a family or in an organization. Uh What what should they really be doing? How does the dialogue change around this? How do people begin to apply these lessons? How do people begin to understand I'll call it, the issues of addiction? Uh, smoking was never really a, um, I'll call it, a disease of isolation, of loneliness, of stigma, of shame. Uh, people would smoke and they'd celebrate the fact that they were uh, smoking. Uh, oh, but clearly, yeah, clearly drugs and 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 they they do that with alcohol, but. With opiates and with cocaine, it is a very and and it it does become a different type of situation. And I'd love to get your perspective on what are the lessons that can be sure. and should be brought to bear here. So you know, I I one of the things that that we've tried to do is to say, um, what what are what are the um, outcomes that we would see as desirable. And were there any models that were very effective in treatment uh, for substance use disorders? And if you went back in private enterprise, probably uh, Delta Airlines, some of the the EAPs that I helped employees um, with problems find treatment and then help them uh, through monitoring um, prevent a relapse in a way to prove cost benefit for the, con- the country as well as for their own company in um, treatment. So like for, for, in my case, we published five-year treatment outcomes for impaired health professionals. And previously I published uh, in five-year treatment outcomes for business executives. And the, the uh, bottom line is that it, it's not so much um the one drug or the other um it's really a coordinated uh, multi-year approach once addiction sets in it has a part of its definition is relapse and part of its um daily life for the user is craving and drive for the drug so in a way where a person who's addicted acquires a new drive, like sex or like for sweet foods, but in this case, a drive for um, drugs of abuse. So in the five-year studies, 
the person may start with a comprehensive assessment. And we like um, and prefer comprehensive assessments that are medical, um, psychiatric, and addiction that with testing, evaluation of the person, then um, coordinated treatment, usually would start in a residential setting, and then the person would step down and, and be on, be in group treatment and doctor-based treatment with um, urine testing. And uh, if there was a change in the person's uh, status, like for example, where work reported they didn't come to work or they were uh, spouse reported that the person was despondent or there was a positive urine test, they would, they would um, be, uh, there'd be an, an, a re-energized uh, effort to uh, move them into a, a different treatment mode. But taking that five-year model, and we've reported that in peer-reviewed literature, 80% of doctors have negative urines, full return to work, and um, what we would consider stable recovery. So if you then compare that to treatment for everyone else, it's um, quite different. Now, people have said, well, that's because these are doctors and they have someone that cares for them. In our case, it would be the Board of Medicine or a kind of a concierge manager to follow their outcome after treatment. But it shows that treatment works, but it's not like name that tune. You can't do it in, in five minutes or five seconds, and detox alone isn't treatment. Reversing an overdose isn't treatment. Um, uh, a 28-day stay in a rehab is in treatment. Taking a medicine to prevent a relapse is in treatment. It's a five, you know, it's, outcomes should be like in cancer where we look at it for five years. So those are great insights, Mark. And if I can maybe just um, underscore a couple things. Uh, we, we actually do know what works and what yeah. can work. And it's not like a light switch. It's not short-term. Uh, it requires um, basically a long-term effort. And I've heard, you know, recovery is actually a lifetime uh, process. So as, you know, whether these are parents or academic institutions or enterprises, uh, the other sort of, I'll call it conclusion that you've reached over your career um, and how we may begin to think about solutions here is that this is not a rational process. So it's not a, um, we now know physi from a physiological standpoint that people who do become addicted um, lose their ability to reason and a certain element of rationality, and, and in fact, they are taken over by the substances. And very yeah. often, what what we have seen here is, you know, Two strikes, you're out. Three strikes, you're out. That without the requisite support, without the requisite medical assistance, this is not something an individual can take on himself or herself. I think that's a really good point. That at one American Psychiatric Association keynote, the National Institute of Drug Abuse Director Nora Volkov had a speech that was said addiction was a disease of free will that targets free will and that choices. And so in many cases, when we talk about young people and adolescents um, using 
substances of abuse, um, we say that they change their reinforcement hierarchy. So instead of uh, swimming or church choir or charitable activities, they may prefer um, substances of abuse. They may not go to parties where where drugs are not available. They may not um, talk to people in any serious way um, unless they share their substance use. So as this slippery slope, and it, it, it occurs so slowly in many cases, now overdose doesn't, and, and that's what you are getting to in the lethality, but addiction is slow and steady. We don't know what change yet occurs that separates the uh, experimental user or occasional user from the drug addict. Um, there's no brain test for that right now. There's no blood test for that right now. There are a bunch of factors involved from genes to trauma to uh, psychiatric disease to dose to root of administration and uh, so forth, but we don't have one specific thing. And so principally what happens is people like me um, are asked to see someone after some uh, accident, car accident, um, after academic performance decrements, after problems at work, after attendance and motivational issues and problems, and as part of a comprehensive psychiatric and addiction assessment, it's determined that it's drug, drug of abuse, drugs of abuse, usually problems. You know, that's another um, uh, thing, mis common mistake that we make when we we find out afterward, after either a post mortem or a DUI evaluation, that the person was taking multiple substances. And so, if you keep in mind that all drugs of abuse hijack the basically the same brain reinforcement system, albeit at different points, but all drugs of abuse do net-net the same thing. A person um, who can't get cocaine will use something else, and oftentimes a cocaine user will be smoking marijuana, will be taking alcohol uh, and binge drinking on alcohol. And so we often see people with three for recent drugs of abuse and concurrent use at the time of admission. So those are uh, essential points. If I can do just a little bit of a summation at this juncture. Um, number one, um, there is a pervasive nature to the addiction crisis right now, and it has cr crossed all economic and educational and family and community minds. Um, we have not applied the lessons that we've learned from such issues around smoking to address the crisis. That what is needed uh, here is um, to bring people into treatment is the removal of stigma and shame. And there are some very valuable lessons that we we know uh, in terms of what leads to successful outcomes that uh, this is not something a person does on their own, and it's not a free will light switch to turn on or off. Um, and again, maybe what makes this crisis different is so many people have found the slippery slope through 
prescribed medications that doctors have given them around accidents and injuries and things like that, uh, but that we have yet to apply the lessons that we have acquired over, you know, 50 plus years in dealing with, you know, the war on drugs and addiction. Now, I wish I would have said it that way. Well, you did. I just <laughs> you're very clear. Uh, you're very clear, and it, it is. It is. Um, there's a always a level for someone like me. My first scientific publication in the field was in 1973. So we um, gave Narcan or Naloxone for overdoses at Yale in the 70s. We um, detoxified people in the 70s. We intervened in emergencies and gave people um, Vivitrol or Naltrexone that makes them immune to opiates in the 70s. Most of it's true that we have uh, this or that kind of new treatment, but they're basically related to older treatments and um, it's much more difficult than thinking that we're going to solve this problem by um, reversing an overdose and sending someone home or uh, giving them a medication and sending them home. It, it's, we, we need to have resources um, to help people to a greater extent than that. Okay. And unfortunately, you know, time won't permit, you know, the relative cost benefits of uh, imprisonment uh, versus giving the support and applying the resources and lessons that you've acquired over, you know, Well, I can tell years. you that the physician health model, when applied to people like you and, and colleagues with, uh, who are working and would have an EAP or, or someone to help monitor them, that the outcomes are, are the same as you would find with um, physicians. So pilots, nuclear power plant operators, people who work in Secret Service or Department of Justice and in drug-free jobs with, with sufficient motivation, we have the skills and treatment and intervention to help people. And that's the good news, at least. Okay, and the phrase that I've sort of put together after our many, many conversations and having read your articles uh, is uh, I'm actually optimistic about the drug crisis, and I feel it's what is intractable is not the nature of the problem, but what has been intractable have been our approaches to the solutions and um, the need to apply the lessons and the need to apply the data and to need to really apply, I'll use actually the word um, empathy uh, to this problem and to the disease and to removing the stigma. Um, so leading into something that um, I think is important uh, from a broader community and public policy standpoint, Mark. Uh, so much of this issue seems to be, uh, at least over the years, has been uh, divided by uh, the issue is one of cutting off these sources of supply versus the issue is the demand is so great here. And that debate is raging once again. Yep. And you have done incredible work with the DEA. I should have Mm -hmm. made it as part of the introduction that Mark is essentially, uh, uh, there's no title that exists at the DEA, but he is he is their physician. He is their, and has been their 
medical advisor. And I know many DEA administrators and many, many people in law enforcement have come around to the notion that, you know, uh, we have to stop looking at this as, as either a demand side or a supply side problem. And I'd love to get, you know, the few minutes we have remaining, some of your thoughts about this um, and certainly maybe a bit of perspective on your continuing work with the DEA. So, you know, I, I agree with you that it's not either or, it should be both. You can see how um, difficult it is right now with heroin pouring into the United States and heroin plus fentanyl without um, sufficient uh, control and interdiction activities. That it is true that the, we have the largest market in the United States for drugs of abuse and that we consume uh, the majority of the world's drugs of abuse. I think one, we, one analysis on pain medications was 96 or 8% of all pain medications produced were used here. There's some number that seemed so incredible it couldn't possibly be true. But both sides really work. So demand, um, our demand uh, is um, tremendous. Um, it starts early. It starts with uh, alcohol, cannabis, tobacco, pills, and so on. And that it does really seem that when we make progress with one drug of abuse, another one comes and takes over. Partly because they're advertised as safe, non-addicting, and um, we find out later that they're not. And really, in that regard, the cocaine is now crept up to number two on the the death list, um, but right behind opioids. And um, on a, a pretty recent um, trip that that I uh, went on with the uh, uh, White House drug czar was was there and um, the DEA administrator was there in Cartagena, um, they showed us disposable submarines that were being launched um, to the United States filled with cocaine. So I, I think um, you can, it, it's very, very clear that, that um, drug taking stimulates drug taking and that um, uh, everyone who is an addict started by being an occasional user, but not every occasional user becomes an addict. And what that process is and what the risk factors are are the subject of books and papers that my group and other groups work on, and it's very complicated. So just to give you the level of complexity, the highest-ranking monkey in a monkey colony, the so-called alpha monkey, um, has the, the, uh, the most addiction protection. And so they're the hardest to get addicted, even to a drug like cocaine that's highly addicting, whereas the lowest ranking monkey that gets food and access and, and sex last in a monkey colony has the most and the highest addiction liability. The traumatized animal and experiment has the highest addiction liability and the most secure and stable 
has the least and the same for depression. Uh, the child of a, of a pregnant uh, drug-using animal has more addiction liability uh, than uh, an animal who is mother's drug-free during pregnancy. The same would apply for early childhood. Exposure in early childhood to secondhand smoke, secondhand cannabis, secondhand tobacco, secondhand cocaine um, changes the brain of the developing child and makes um, use of drugs more likely, not on the basis of mimicking, but because the brain is plastic and, and changes and the brain, in essence, grows receptors and sites in the brain to respond to drugs of abuse because it's brought up in a drug-filled environment. So in many ways, people like me who work in addiction are the most strongly in favor of exercise, good food, clean air, clean water, and um, we need that um, to reduce the host factors that cause one drug epidemic after another. But a pretty simple lesson would be that drugs of abuse like medications, are dangerous until proven safe and effective for some disease, um, but they should be dangerous until proven safe rather than safe until proven dangerous. Again, some great points, Mark. And um, just in conclusion, uh, because as you've pointed out, um, and I've referenced, Mark has a great presentation on the development of uh, the female brain, its capacity to understand risk and risk-taking, and uh, how it's essentially, if, if I remember correctly, Mark, it's fully formed, that part of the brain is fully formed by 14, 15, 16 years of age. Um, we really looked at, like, like, the brain development, uh, female brain development is much more advanced than male, and that the, right. the part of the brain to say no, say no to food, say no to sex, say no to drug. The part of the brain that, that can do risk-benefit analysis is very slow to develop for all of us and is really um, acquired through experience slowly again. Um, male brain um, is much slower to develop, but the whole risk-benefit part of the brain is the reason that, that um, experts are so concerned about teenage drug use. And so among the things that has, you know, that I think are very important in terms of risk management enterprises and understanding this is number one, there is science around um, explaining what we do and why we do it. There is science about why um, very quickly rationality goes out the window and self-control goes out the window. There is now data and science around what works and what's needed uh, to foster recovery. There's data uh, around communications and what word and how words matter in terms of the stigma and shame and isolation that can be applied to this, but also the acceptance and bringing people in to recovery and keeping them in recovery. Uh, what also exists um, is an understanding that in this interconnected world, uh, number one, uh, the capacity to produce synthetic substances is now greater than ever before. To distribute over the internet and the dark web and through the various borders and to create things in-house is greater than ever. 
and the human capacity for risk-taking experimentation uh, will probably never leave us, but the one thing that shouldn't leave us is our ability to learn the lessons of the past and the common sense that can be applied and the understanding of uh, some of the great minds such as Mark's. So, Mark, uh, to be continued, and I thank you for your public service, and I, I thank you for continuing to foster, you know, greater understanding, intelligence, data, and um, optimism. And there are many families and many institutions that are out there that have been left stranded. And uh, for all the folks in our network, uh, what I would say is one should assume that your enterprises and your families either are dealing with this issue and you, you just don't know it, um, or, or they, they will, because uh, this seems to be sparing no one and, you know, sort of an affliction that at most is one degree away. And so the good news is that uh, people such as Mark uh, actually know what they're doing and there's data to prove it. And um, it's now just a question of the marketplace actually applying the lessons that have been acquired over these many decades. So, Mark, thank you again. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And thank you for all your work.